Welcome back to the show, everybody. It's another episode of the Ramos Law Difference Makers podcast. And I'm your host, Dr. Jim Hoven, and it is my pleasure to have the opportunity to meet with people who are making a difference. And that difference can be anywhere from a local difference to a massive worldwide difference. And today I have one of those guests, one of those guests who's because of his passion project is going to change people's lives the way that my brief introduction my life is actually better from the little limited experience I've had with this person and his work. So without further ado, I don't want to take any more time without introducing you to Mr. Ralph Morales and all of the great things he's doing. Ralph, welcome to the show and thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Oh, it is our pleasure because here's what I know. I know that if there's one thing that means the world to me and to so many Americans, it's the people who have served our country, the people who have given themselves who they are, what they're about. And at the end of the day, unfortunately, all too many have made the ultimate sacrifice and paid with their lives. And um, what you've done as an incredibly accomplished individual, and, and I know you, just from where you're coming from and your roots, you don't want to talk about you. You want to talk about your project. But I just got to say, you're a super accomplished attorney in New York, and you're helping fight for the rights of people out there. And through all of that, you've been changed. And I'm sure there's an influence story behind your uncle that we're going to talk about and get to and connect all the dots here as I'm creating all this suspense for the audience. But man, would you please just tell us how in the world you came to want to write a book about your uncle, his time in, in Vietnam, and this thing, even the, the, the title, which I want to make sure I get it exactly right, A Saint's Letters from the Depths of Hell. Can you tell us how all this coalesced to become the project of your lifetime? Sure, sure. And, and thank you for the flattering words. I, I do appreciate that. Well, this all it came to, to a head in July of 2002. Uh, my mother, who's actually on the cover of the book with my uncle, she passed away very suddenly and unexpectedly uh, in July of 2002. And at that time, my, my siblings and I, we were going through her belongings and I came across a box that I'd never seen before. And I opened the box and inside this box were dozens of letters that I obviously never knew about. They were letters from my uncle Vinny to my mother from Vietnam uh, when he was a young kid. And I grew up in the same house that Vinny grew up in. His parents were my grandparents. And he died 16 months before I was born to Lily, his sister. And to be honest, Vinny was more myth than man to me growing up. He, no one spoke about him. Very rarely did they speak about him. It was almost in hushed, reverent tones. And even as a kid, I, I realized, well, he must have been a special guy, but I also knew nothing about him, again, because it was just, he was more a picture on the wall. And I remember as a kid, I'm looking up at this picture, and I'm thinking, oh, he must have been some old dude when he died, you know, like a 50-year-old guy. I'm 52. <laughs> now. I think he must have been, you know, really old. And so that was pretty much the extent of it. And then I find these letters, and I'm like, my God, he was a kid. He was 18, 19 years old when he was writing these letters. And the biggest thing that really struck me was that Vinny and Lily, my mother, were best friends. They were so close. Just by nature of the way he wrote to her, I realized for the first time, unfortunately, after my mom's passing, that she must have been absolutely devastated by losing her brother. It must have floored her. I'm sure she never got over it. She never told us about these letters. And I was very close to my mother, so I was shocked that she never shared them with me. And she sort of just kept them squirreled away in a box. And it was only in reading these letters that Vinny, I realized, wasn't some old guy when he passed away. He was a kid. I have kids older than him now. Uh, he was a kid doing crazy things, you know, serving our country as a Marine in Vietnam. 
Now I can tell you when I was 18 and 19, the, the, the biggest worry I had was what I was going to have for dinner that night, you know, where I was going to yes. go hang out, you know, um, totally, totally different experience. And to say that I was blown away would be to put it mildly when I read these letters. Wow. And so I can't imagine you're going through, you're already dealing with grief and you, your mom has passed and you're going through all her belongings. And I just lost my dad this past year in the last six months. And so I understand having gone through that process, seeing something on one side, it brings you pain. And on the other thing side, it brings you comfort. So you're going through, you find these letters. What does that create in you, Ralph? What, what emotions did you see? Did, did you wish that you had more time? Did it crush you? Did it inspire you? Because that's obviously the start of this journey for you. Well, the answer would be yes <laughs> to everything. Yes, to everything. I, I can tell you, honestly, my first reaction was absolute grief. I was completely devastated because I'm reading these letters. And like I said, I was as close to my mom as anything. And I couldn't believe that there was this treasure trove, this, this history right under our, our fingertips that we never knew about. And of course, I had a million questions I wanted to ask my mom, you know, just based on the letters themselves. So my first, my first reaction was just absolute devastation, grief, you know, great remorse, you know, because I realized there was so much more about my mother that I didn't know uh, and that I would never get to know, you know, or so I thought. Uh, my, my next emotion after just trying to process this whole idea of, of Vinian is now becoming true to life to me. He's becoming a human being. You know, he's now becoming more man than myth, which is uh, what he was not as, as a kid growing up in the same house as him. My, my next reaction was, was inspiration, really. That was my next feeling because I was inspired. I realized, you know what? I need to share this story. It's an amazing story. It, it's really a piece of Americana when you think about it. Um, and I was never a big military buff. I, I didn't really know much about the military. Uh, what's crazy is that my family, as I learned, were they were Gold Star members. Gold Stars are essentially members of the community who've lost loved ones uh, in service to our country in the military. And I didn't even know that. I, I was almost embarrassed, you know, when I came to realize that I was part of a wow. family. Um, but I was inspired. I knew that I wanted to share this story. The biggest hurdle I had to overcome, and it was a gigantic hurdle, was when I sat down and I began processing what I wanted to do. I realized all I know about Vinny is these letters. I had no context of Vinny. I had no idea who he was. I had no idea the type of kid he was. And I mean, he died at 19, so he was a kid. I had no idea of the man that he was in Vietnam. So I embarked upon a mission of trying to meet as many people as I could that could sort of uh, instill knowledge into me and, and really grow my base of appreciation for who Vinny was as a kid, who he was in Vietnam, and what he ultimately meant to his, his brother Marines before he was killed. And how did you go about that process? So you get inspired and you think, okay, I want to know who this man was. Did you start with your family and did you say, listen, we've never talked about this. I've lived in this home. So did you start there and work your way out or what was your plan? Well, ironically, the only members of my family that were alive at the time were my grandmother, his mother, and his younger brother, my uncle. Um, and I spoke to my uncle about it. Um, he was 12 when, when Vinny was killed and he was, he was obviously very upset by that. So the feeling was he didn't want, I didn't want to reopen those wounds with my uncle. Um, yes. He also told me, please don't talk to grandma, you know, to Rose about this because, you know, she was obviously elderly at the time. The last thing I wanted to do was to reopen that wound, uh, you know, to basically have her revisit a time that I'm sure uh, was, was just a terrible time in her life. So I didn't have those resources. What I didn't say was I began to look online on military websites, 
Vietnam veteran websites to try to find guys that knew him in Vietnam. That was sort of the, the approach that I took. And over the course of the next 10 years, I met a number of guys, um, all of whom said great things about Vinny, but none of whom had really substantive memories that would really give me that spark, you know, because I needed that spark. I could have written a complete fiction um, and that would have been fine, but I didn't feel that would do justice to Vinny. I wanted it to pay homage to Vinny and to my mom too. So I, I, I figured I need to find more. So um, ironically enough, it, it, after almost, after more than 10 years, I get a call from a reporter from out in Seattle. And the reporter says to me, uh, are you the nephew of Vincent Santanello? Which was odd, because I've never gotten a call like that. I said, yes, I am. He said, I'm a reporter from ABC out in, C out in California. We just did a big special on a gentleman who's very prominent on the West Coast in Seattle. And his name is Michael Regan. You might want to give him a call. He might have some information for you. And he gave him the number. And I'll be honest with you, I was thinking, all right, that, that's fine. This is going to be another one of those calls where they say, you know what, your uncle was a great guy, but I don't really have you know many memories because it's so long ago. So I went into this phone call with Michael Regan with very little expectations, honestly, because that's just the way it had been. And so I, I get on the phone with Michael and his voice is very soothing. He, he's got almost like a, a Zen aspect to his voice. So we begin the conversation. He goes, are you uh, Ralph Vincent Morales? I say, yes, I am. And his next words were, I want you to know your uncle was in no pain when he died. And that Whoa. is how it began. So Whoa. I was completely floored uh, to the point where I, I, I almost had nothing more to say. I didn't know what to say to him. So after stuttering and probably sound like a bumbling fool, I said, I'm sorry, Mr. Reagan, what are you talking about? And he said, your, your uncle was in my arms when right before he died. And his brother Marines, uh, John Nunn, and Tony Malaza, who were corpsmen, basically medics in the field, they were with me. And we ensured that Vinny's last moments on earth were peaceful and that he knew that he was with people that loved him uh, and he was not alone and he was not in any pain. And that is sort of the genesis uh, for, for the book. Because up until that point, I had no basis of knowledge of what happened in Vietnam. And so Michael, he told me that he had started a project called the Fallen Heroes Project. And the basis of that project, which began back in 2004, was Michael's an accomplished artist. And he was working at the University of Washington at the time. And he had become very prominent in, in the Seattle area and along the West Coast for the portraits that he drew of celebrities. His, his artwork is amazing. Um, but he raised a lot of money for different charities and he made a very good living drawing these portraits. And he said in 2004, I got a call from a, a wife of a deceased veteran from the, uh, the war in Afghanistan of a Marine widow. And she saw his work and she said, Michael, I, you're a great artist. I'd, I'd love for you to draw a portrait of my husband because I haven't been able to sleep in the years since, he's, since he was killed. So Michael drew the portrait of that Marine and presented it to his wife. And she told him when she got the portrait, she says, he's back home. For the first time in my life, I, I realized that you know my husband is, is at, at peace and she was able to sleep thereafter. And Michael said from that point on, he realized I've got to draw them all, which is, are his exact words. And the basis for this project, the Fallen Heroes Project, was uh, an event back on March 28 of 1968, when he was holding a brother Marine in his arms. And that brother Marine, before he passed away, looked up at Michael and said, Mike, I just want to go home. And that Marine was my uncle. And my wow. uncle served wow. as the inspiration for the Fallen Heroes Project. And so... And that just blows my mind, Ralph. It's so crazy that the world connected the dots 
this story was meant to be told. And I've seen that interview that was done about the story and it, it was so powerful and so impactful to me. How far along was your uncle in his tour when, when this happened to him? Was he close to the end of he where was, he was supposed to be coming out? He was nine months into his tour and the tours for the Marines were 13 months. Um, uh, what's ironic, he was killed, like I said, on March 28th of 1968. He was going to be the best man at my mother's wedding. She was supposed to be getting married just about eight weeks after that point. And so uh, what I learned in these letters is Vinny was constantly asking my mother, do you want me to wear my dress blues? Do you want me to wear my dress greens for the wedding? So he was terrible. It was, it's a terrible story in that respect. It's a very tragic story, but he was killed eight weeks before he was going to be the uh, best man at my mother's wedding. Oh, wow. And it, they were close. You, you already commented, they were best friends. What did you gain or learn about your mother from those emails? Was there something that you took that now you can relate and help with who she was as a person from the letters that, that she and he had exchanged all those years back? Well, I can tell you this. I knew well before the letters that my mom was a very, very tough woman, very, very uh, you know, she's street smart. You know, she grew up in New York City. Uh, she had experienced a lot. And I could tell by nature of the letters, they were they would go at each other. You know, they would call each other names. They would make fun of each other. I mean, they were they were 18 and 20 at the time. Um, but what I came to really uh, respect and appreciate was that there was a respect factor between the two of them, a love. And it was a bond. Uh, almost a, a promise. I'll take care of you. You take care of me. I'm going to be there for you forever. You're going to be there for me forever. And it was that whole thing where she kept in, in the letters. You could tell she must have been saying to him, Vinny, you better make sure you come back home. You know, you're going to be my, the best man at my wedding. I'm not going to take any excuses. You better make it back type of thing. And that was sort of a, a vibe that I got from the letters. And I really incorporated that into the story that I wrote. Um, you know, it's obviously a fiction, but it was really based on these letters. And what I did was what I wrote, when I wrote the book, every chapter begins verbatim with a letter from Vinny to my mom. And then I extrapolated from the tenor of those letters, a storyline. And of course I incorporated into the storyline, uh, concepts and experiences that Michael Reagan shared with me, that John Nunn shared with me, Tony Malazzo, the other corpsman, he shared with me. There was another gentleman that I met again as a result of this, this divine intervention with Michael, Daniel King, um, I met with him. He was another Marine at the time. And, and they all, there was a Ned Leroy, Ned Leroy. He met, I met with him. He gave me information. So I, I literally, I went from not having anything to having a plethora of not only of stories, but really substantive ideas and concepts about who his brother Marines realized he was in Vietnam. So I had a great depth of information, uh, including some really harrowing stories that make your skin crawl about what these young guys, again, they were kids between the ages of 18 and 21, what they went through in Vietnam. And they relayed those stories with me. And when I tell you they loved Vinny, I'm, I'm not doing justice to what they told me about him. Now, granted, 50 years plus have passed. And, and sure, you know, over the passage of time, you know, your, your memories grow very fond, but the respect, you know, the, the real love that they had for Vinny spoke not only about the camaraderie of Marines, because these guys, you talk about brothers, you know, band of brothers. Yes. That is not a cliche. They were brothers. They loved each other. They were absolutely loyal to each other. And when I tell you the, the palpable emotion that these men who are heroes to me, they were all in their late 60s, early 70s when I met with them. They broke down. They, they cried. Uh, and they're proud men. You know, crying is not accepted 
in that generation of, of men. And they broke down and cried talking about Vinny. And I know I'm going far afield here, but John Nunn, one of the corpsmen, he actually apologized to me, repeatedly apologized. I'm so sorry I wasn't able to save Vinny. He blamed himself. I wish it was me that died, not him. And that was sort of the tenor of, of what I learned about Vinny through the mouths of these very incredible gentlemen. Did you also learn something that maybe you didn't know or reinforced the esprit de corps that uh, exists among those group of individuals, those those men of that era? And I'm sure it, it consists and is really, really pervasive through our military today. But did you gain something that maybe you didn't know or that was unique to you on what they go through and how they connect as a team? Because I can't imagine, you know, I mean, I've got my crew. I'm sure you have yours. And. We do what we do with them and man, we feel totally tight. But when you go through the training and then the battle and literally trying to survive together while you're meeting a country's mission that you may or may not agree with or even know, that's gotta be something different that unless you understand it, you don't understand it. Did you find any of that in your research? Absolutely. There's a big uh, saying in the Marine Corps, Semper Fi, Semper Fidelis. It's Latin for always faithful or ever faithful. And that's what these guys were. It's a very simple appreciation, but it's, it's profound at the same time. They were ever faithful to each other. I will die for you because I know you will die for me. I will have your back because I know you will always have mine. And we're in this country that's completely foreign to us. We're in the jungles. We're in the, the heat. You know, it's hot. It's cold. It's constantly raining. We've got sores all over our bodies. We've got leeches sucking blood out of our bodies. We've got enemies trying to kill us at literally every moment, but I find solace. If there's any solace to be found in the depths of hell, it's solace knowing that you are my brother and that you will always look out for me. You will protect me. And if God forbid something happens to me, you will never leave me behind. You would be amazed at how many Marines were killed, not necessarily directly in battle, but killed trying to save a brother who had been injured or mortally wounded, trying to recover that person, trying to recover that body, so that they can bring him home and send him home. And they were killed, you know, just in that, in that effort. It's amazing, the degree of loyalty, the degree of love, and, and we use loyalty, you know, very flippantly. You know, we talk about love, I love you, I'm loyal to you. But when you realize what that means in the context of absolute chaos, in the context of a war where it was a war unlike any war we had fought up until that point in time, just because there were no rules, there were no ground rules, in past wars, there's an understanding, a gentleman's agreement, so to speak, amongst the warriors at battle that you know, we will only do certain things. We will not battle at certain times. Vietnam was the first time where we were fighting an enemy that didn't care about what the, the, the rules of engagement were. And it was a very different time. Um, so they had to overcome that aspect as well. So what I learned is that the words loyalty and love took on a completely different meaning for these young guys, these kids, you know, they grew up extremely fast in those jungles and they they came to love and respect and honor each other. Uh, but at the same time, they knew that they couldn't be too connected because when they're in battle, if you see one of your brothers go down and they saw it constantly, if you lose focus for a split second to mourn the loss, you're gonna be right next to him with a bullet in your head. So just the unbelievable tenor of, of what they told me and, and just the depth of what they had to go through really shook me to my core. I'm sure, I, I don't know how it couldn't honestly, Ralph, have changed you 
as you've gone through the study, I mean, a decade of research, then you have this really, I mean, almost godly encounter where it ties the pieces together. Now you start meeting people, you start putting the, these things into the puzzle. So now it all makes sense. You get the inspiration, to tell the story. How has it changed you as an author, a dad, a, a man, an attorney? What did what you learned through this experience about your uncle and what he went through change you? Well, I'll tell you, if you, if you look over my shoulder, you'll see a portrait of my uncle. That's the portrait that Michael Regan presented to me during the celebration of the Fallen Heroes Project back on Memorial Day weekend of 2014. And that portrait, it, it embodies uh, so much to me. And what I learned as a human being, what I learned as a dad, is it inspired me to understand the depth of service that men like Vinny, men like Michael and John and, and Tony Malazzo, and of course, the more than 58,000 men and women that didn't get to come home from Vietnam, the depth of service, uh, the depth of loyalty. So what inspired me as a father, as a member of my community is what can I do to give back? What can I do? And I'm, I'm not perfect. I'm not trying to make myself out to be a hero by any means whatsoever. And I pale in comparison to that young guy over my shoulder for sure. But what can I do to the best of my ability to serve others, to try to make their lives just a little bit better, whether, whether it's being a coach, whether it's being involved in the local PAL programs that offer different sporting programs, whether it's just trying to help my kids with their homework, whether it's trying to be the best lawyer that I could be to my clients, to try to give the best service that I can to my clients. Whatever I do, I try my best to see if I can serve others, if I can be uh, an inspiration to others. And when I fail, I realize, all right, I, this is how I can be better, or what can I do to be better? But it all had its genesis really in learning about that young kid and what he did, what he sacrificed, uh, and, and what his sacrifice meant not only to me, because it, me it means a great deal to me to this day, but what it means to this country. You know, there are, there are tons, there are millions of Vinnie Santanellos out there that didn't get to come home, including the 13 Marines that just recently lost their lives in Afghanistan, you know, late last month. Um, what does it mean? You know, what does their service mean? Is it just a lost life and that's where it ends? I don't think so. I think that's where it begins because you, me, and all of us, we have our freedoms because of their sacrifices. You know, we don't have to go to war. We don't have to serve because they sacrifice their lives for you and for me. And whenever I'm down and whenever I think I can't do something, or if I'm on a trial, I'm like, oh my God, this is just killing me. I realize, wait a minute, I'm worried about what? About a trial? These heroes, these young men and women, they gave up their lives so that I could do what I do. And that means the world to me. And that's what keeps me going. That is so impressive and so beautifully said. I'm interested in now in the book, when you started writing it, <clears throat> I'm assuming you're wanting to write it as a treasure, a memoir, uh, an expression to, to lift Uncle Vinny up. As you went through the process, were there storylines, themes, things that came to you that gave you other things that were going to come of this book that would that would inspire people or help them learn something about the military or human character or our spirits? What was the what was the end product of the spirit of your book? Well, I mean, it's it's a great point that you bring up. The one thing that I was missing after meeting with those men in Seattle uh, and back home was I didn't have the context of who Vinny was before Vietnam. Now I knew who he was in Vietnam. 
So by happenstance, I remember there was a gentleman who I recalled as a very young kid. His name was John Chang. John was a family friend. Uh, what I didn't know when I was a kid was he was very, very close with Vinny. They were actually best friends in Jamaica, Queens, which is where Vinny grew up and I grew up. It's a borough of New York City. And I connected with John. And John, to this day, says his best friend is, not was, but is Vinny. And John wow. gave me so many stories about who Vinny was as a kid. And it was really John that helped me understand not only the Vinny before Vietnam, but the Vinny after he was killed. Because my grandparents, when they found out that Vinny was killed, they didn't want they didn't want his body to be coming home by itself. And so they asked if John could help help him come home. Now John was in the last month of his tour. He was he was a corpsman as well, uh, and he had done his whole tour. He was in Japan in Okinawa, Japan, to serve out the last four weeks of his tour. When he got a call saying, "John, there's a, a Mr. Santanella from New York that wants you to do a favor for him." And John realized at that point what that was. And then he realized, oh, my God, my best friend is dead. And John accompanied Vinny's body back home from Dover, Delaware to Jamaica, Queens, stood guard over his body during the wake and was there for the funeral. And so what John helped me realize was who Vinny was as a kid. So, you know, people ask me, what, what kind of story is this? Is this a, a military story? Is it, is it just an, another military book? And to call it a book about the military, while it obviously has a big element to the book, is almost a disservice. This book is about human relationships. When people ask me to describe the genre, I struggle because it's not just a military book. It's a story about relationships, about human relationships, about young kids, about older people looking back with the benefit of with, the, with hindsight and realizing how important this man was. So when I put this book together, I didn't want it to be just another military book because you could get that anywhere. I wanted it to be about the human experience. This book is a book about loyalty, about love, about terrible tragedy, about human perseverance and about overcoming. And it's all of those things. And it's all of those things through the eyes of some young knucklehead who's you know trying to goof on his sister, who's trying to bust jokes with his friends in Vietnam, but is trying to survive one second at a time one nanosecond at a time. What I learned from those guys in Vietnam is, you can't worry about what you're gonna do five minutes from now. You may not be alive five minutes from now. You gotta know what you're doing right now and the second after right now. And then that's how you take it. One second at a time. That's one hell of a way to try to live. Can you imagine trying to live one second at a time? No. So that was the theme of the book. It was sort of a, a collection of human experiences. And what I tried to do to the best of my ability and readers have, have actually contacted me and said that I was successful in this goal. I wanted you, the reader, to feel that you were part of that story, that you were either a Marine, you were a Santanello, you were a friend of the family, you were part of that story. And you felt what was going through the, the minds of those men when they were in Vietnam. You felt was go what was going through the minds of the Santanello family when they were struggling, hoping that Vinny was gonna get back because Vinny was the rock of the family. He was the oldest son. And he was going to come back home and he was going to serve and he was going to do justice and he was going to help his family. You know, he was going to be that next one. And he never had that opportunity. And I wanted the readers to feel that palpable sense of loss and that palpable sense of tragedy. Again, because I wanted them to understand how do we persevere in times of great tragedy? Do we do we succumb to it? Do we surrender to it or do we do what we can to to mourn, to appreciate that life that was unfortunately snuffed out? And what do we do not only to move on ourselves to overcome, but what are we doing to keep that person's legacy alive? 
And through the, the magic of this book, I think that's what I brought to the readers, that Vinny isn't just another young man that lost his life. Vinny has a rich legacy. He has a legacy through Michael with these portraits. Michael has drawn almost 9,000 portraits, free of charge, wow. charge a nickel. And there are almost 10,000 of these portraits hanging in the families, uh, in the homes of families that have lost loved ones, whether it was in Vietnam, in the war against Afghanistan. Michael has drawn the, uh, the portraits of those children that were killed in, in Sandy Hook. He's drawn portraits of police officers that have been killed in the line of duty. He drew the portraits of those individuals that were killed in the church down in South Carolina. So he has done so much to try to bring a sense of closure, dignity, respect, love to family members that have lost loved ones. And it's through the Fallen Heroes Project. And Vinny is alive in every one of those portraits because Vinny serves as Michael's muse. Vinny is Michael's inspiration. And without Vinny, there would be no Fallen Heroes Project. And as much as I would have loved to get to know Vinny, because I think he would have been a phenomenal uncle, I think he would have been great. I, I, I'm proud, you know, there, my, my sense of loss, my sense of, of sadness is overcome by a great deal of pride and respect, not only for what he did in service to our country, but what he does through the Fallen Heroes Project, through that magical right hand of Michael Regan. That is so fascinating. Man, I'm telling you, <clears throat> there's so much to unpack in all of this and the way that you've just been able to grab it and bring it together and then share it with us, the reader, it, it's really remarkable. That said, I'm wondering, you had talked about both your uncle and your grandmother not even wanting to speak about it. When the book came out, did they read it? Did they stay away from it because of opening up the pain and, and other family members? How has that been for you guys? Has it been a healing force for your family? Well, my grandmother, unfortunately, she passed away in, in 2008. And ironically, talk about coming full circle. I finished writing the first draft of the book on January 8th, 2013, which was the fifth anniversary of my grandmother's death. And I didn't even realize it until I sat there and I realized, oh my God, I'm done and here's what this day means. So um, my uncle, his younger brother, uh, I don't think he was ready to really uh, you know, dive back into that. And, and I love him and I respect him and I wasn't gonna push it on him for sure. But Vinny has a number of, of cousins and second cousins that are still alive. Um, and I wasn't necessarily very close with them because I didn't really get a chance to know them. But since this book has been out, I've gotten a lot of incredible feedback and the overwhelming sense of pride that they have because they knew Vinny. They knew him very well. Um, he has one. He has two aunts that are still alive and they have both read the book and, and they've both been very, very forthright in how they feel uh, a sense of pride. They feel that I brought uh, pride and dignity to the family and uh, maybe a little bit of closure. You know, you'll never get over losing someone that was as revered as Vinny. But the, the feedback that I've gotten from from those family members has really been heartfelt by me because I realized that the book had its the goal of the book was accomplished. The mission was accomplished. I wanted to bring respect and admiration for Vinny and for my mom. Let's not forget Lily. Um, yes, she's, a, she's an integral part of the book as well. And to, I, I guess for the family members, sit back and, and read this book and say, oh my God, this, this is my family. This is my nephew. This is my niece. And they're memorialized and, and really a great tribute has been brought to them through the virtue of this book. And that to me means a, a, a world of difference. It, it really does mean a great deal to me. And then to see the, the reactions of Michael and John Nunn and Daniel King and Tony Malazzo, 
the words and the tears and and just the overwhelming sense of, of pride that they have uh, by reading about themselves because they're mentioned by name in the book. Uh, I didn't change their names. They they gave me permission to use their names. So it, it must be surreal for them to sit down and say, I'm reading a book about me. You know, that's <laughs> but it, it really the combination of, of that sense of, of, of gratitude made every ounce of, of hard work that I, that was put into this book well worth it. I would do it again in a heartbeat. Oh, well, Ralph, I'll tell you what, this conversation has been fascinating and, and just your spirit with which you give it, it's, it brings the life out of you. And I can imagine if you give all of your clients, you give them this same passion, energy, and as a father that you're sharing with us, this thing has impacted you to your DNA and it's incredible. And I want our listening audience to have the opportunity, if they're, whether they're watching or listening, to have the opportunity to get the spirit we'll call it the the Vinny spirit, right? How how can they get between Vinny and Lily and how can they get that? Um, if if we want people to be able to buy this book from you, how can they reach out and how can they find it? Sure. Well, they can get it at Amazon, Barnes & Noble online. They can go to my website, ralphvincentmorales.com. The book is available there. Um, if they want, they can email me uh, and ask for a copy of the book. I'd be happy to arrange that with them. The email is ralphvmorales at gmail.com. So the book is available, you know, anywhere people get books online and again at my website. And trust me, they will remember this book well after they turn the final page. There's no doubt in my mind. It, it will move them in ways that they've never been moved because I was moved writing the book. Uh, so I can tell you if, if you're thinking, well, I don't want to read a military book, then get it because it's not a military book. It's a book about human experiences and it will move you. You will be profoundly affected uh, in, in ways you've never imagined by experiencing this book, because you're not reading it, you're experiencing it. And that's what I tell people, you're not gonna read the book, you're going to experience it. And until you dive into it, it's an experience that you just, you will never forget. I, I can't wait to, to get my copy, Russ, who introduced us and actually just introduced us, he's holding onto it, he's hogging it. So as soon as we're done, uh -huh. I'm gonna go into his office and I'm gonna grab it because I'm compelled, I have to, I have to get through it. Um, are there any more books in your future? I don't know if you've been asked that, but I can tell your love of writing and, and I don't know if you were inspired to this story or you're inspired to the act, but uh, what do you think? Any more books in you? I, I think I, I have the bug now. You know, I've, I've gotten the urge and, and once you get into it, you know, believe me, when I first started this process, I'm thinking, what am I doing? I, I don't even know. I've never done this before. But once right. I started writing it, it was flowing from me. It was an amazing experience. It was very cathartic, uh, very calming. You know, because as a trial lawyer, there's a lot of chaos. There's a lot of insanity. There's a lot of time when your, your head's on fire. This brought me a sense of peace. And it really was something unlike anything I've done. So absolutely, I'm inspired. I do want to write more books. Um, I've informed, as Russ may have told you, Russ and I, we worked in the Brooklyn DA's office years ago. Um, and there's a whole uh, cornucopia of, of experiences and, and memories that I have from that. So that might be one of my next projects to write a book based on experiences of, of what I learned through the police department, what I learned as a prosecutor, because you want to talk about craziness. There's a lot of uh, a lot of stories that can be told about what was going yes. on in the '90s in Brooklyn, for sure. And you know, uh, one one final thing, I, I got to bring it up now. Now that we're kind of at this point in the conversation, am I right in saying that my understanding is that you and Russ, who works in our office as an attorney, wonderful attorney here, you guys were together on 9/11. Am I understanding that right? Yes, yes, we, we were. That and, experience, I've heard him tell his side of it, and it it's just an emotional 
roller coaster for me to hear his experience. And I can't imagine for you guys that that would be another just tale that people would want to know, like because we all felt it, but you couldn't feel what you guys felt who were right there next to it. Yeah, that was uh, to say it was surreal. Um, it, it was unbelievable. I, I was going to work that day in Brooklyn and I just walked out of the subway station, the Lawrence Street subway station in Brooklyn. I'm walking up the steps and I get a phone call on my cell phone. It's my mother. And she goes, are you in your office yet? And I said, no, why? What's going on? Because she knew my office was at 350 J Street, which is downtown Brooklyn. And my office had a view of the East River, the Brooklyn Bridge and the Twin Towers. It was an incredible view. Um, and I said, no. And she goes, well, a plane just hit one of the towers. And, you know, at that time, you, you can't think of that in the context of 2021. You got to think about it in the context yeah. of 2001. I was like, all right, you know, maybe it was a small plane. No big deal. I'm like, all right, mom, no worries. You know, I'll, I'll let you know what happens when I get to the office. So I go to my office and there's a bunch of attorneys milling around in my office because I had, you know, the, the perfect view. And I remember I was struck by the size of the hole in the North Tower. And we saw sparkling things falling out of the hole. And I was just in just shock at how big and how black this hole was. And, you know, what we subsequently learned was what we thought was metal. Maybe it was metal and glass falling from the tower. It was also human beings jumping out of the, uh, the building because of the unbearable heat. And uh, what I remember is we're all standing there sort of murmuring and in shock and not really understanding or processing what's going on. And then we see from our left what looked like uh, it was a black, we thought it was a missile, a black object because the plane was flying so the second plane was flying so low and so fast that it was in the shadows of the you know the top of the buildings so i just remember a lot of people screaming out it's a missile it's a missile and we see this thing flying and, and unfortunately you know the image that everyone saw on television of the second tower that terrible fiery explosion that's what we saw and then we begin realizing wait a minute this this isn't normal right this is something is wrong here uh, and of course there was sheer panic there was chaos and the next memory i have is being outside of the building because then we start hearing all the buildings are going to get attacked every federal building is going to get hit by a plane that's what we heard on the news on 1010 winds which was uh, a news station here in new york so everyone's running out of the building and russ and i met in the front of the building um and we realized you know what are we going to do so we started walking around and the one thing that struck me and i know it struck russ downtown brooklyn is so loud you know because it's like manhattan it's so loud there's so much going on and the one thing that struck me is that it was silent it was eerily silent and russ and i were sitting on the steps of borough hall which is right across from our building and i remember we we didn't say a word to each other we were both sitting there in literal shock about what had just transpired um and then we start hearing this loud sound above us and we look up and it's fighter jets and we realized, dear God, we're at war. You know, we, the, the, the magnitude of what had happened still hadn't settled in. But when we see the fighter jets, and we realized we, we were in the midst of something that was unlike anything we'd ever lived through. Uh, and the next thing I remember was uh, ghosts walking down uh, from the Brooklyn Bridge, coming down Court Street. And when I say ghosts, they were people covered head to toe in soot. And... I remember watching them and again, I couldn't really process what was going on. I knew at that point that the first tower had collapsed. Um, but again, the magnitude of that hadn't sunk in. And now I see these people walking. And the one thing I remember vividly was um, an African-American woman who was walking with a terrible limp. 
And the reason I remember she was African-American is because, not because I could see the color of her skin, but because her tears had washed away some of the soot that was on her face. And I could see her complexion uh, amidst the gray that she was otherwise. And the reason she was limping is she was walking with one heel on one foot and no shoe on the other foot. And that that was tough. It, it was tough. Yeah. I mean, it's 20 years later, and I, I still, I wish I could forget it, to be honest with you. I wish I could forget that explosion. I wish I could forget the fighter jets. Um, but it's just, it's a terrible image that's burned into my mind. And it'll be just as painful today as it will be 10 years from now, 20 years from now. It's just something that you never forget. And and to to know now, you know, obviously the, the great deal of, of, of lives that were lost, you know, 343 firefighters, the dozens of police officers and EMS workers and court officers and Port Authority officers that were running into that building while thousands were running out. Just the, the level of courage, you know, it sort of comes full circle when you think about what what our armed forces do, you know, they readily sacrifice their lives, uh, knowing that they could die. Uh, and these policemen and firemen and other, uh, you know, first responders, I'm sure that was in the back of their mind. But at that moment, all they were thinking was, I'm going to get in there and save people. And then they unfortunately perish. It's just the, the, the magnitude of, of the loss of life is something that will live in me forever. You know, the degree of respect I have for those first responders, but also the degree of, of just great sadness I have for those family members that, you know, they lost loved ones who were just trying to make a living. You know, they, they wanted to go to work and they intended to jump on the train, jump in the, in the cab, jump on whatever they want to go to go back home. And they just go back to work the next day. You know, that's what it was. It was a routine and their lives were completely and, and eternally affected by that, that terrible tragedy. Well, you have done a magnificent job describing that for us today. Thank you. I didn't, that wasn't even necessarily part of what, what I was intending to, to talk about, but just the way that you tell stories, you're such a great storyteller. And thank you for, for allowing us to feel a little bit of what you felt that day. And again, I think there might be a story for us all um, to come to come out of you from your perspective on that. But um, man, just know that you have a, a constant friend here know that we appreciate all that you've given that this gift that you've given us we're going to be able to all share it and and keep vinny's legacy alive and in the meantime we're all going to become better people at it so man Ralph, thank you thank you for taking the time for joining us and i wish you continued success in everything that you do thank you so much it's been a great opportunity to speak with you i appreciate it my pleasure